You're listening to an On The Move Media Co. production. Whatever you have to say or tell yourself to get the ball rolling, you know, and get the ball in motion, it will stay in motion. It's just getting over that mental hurdle of like taking the first step. The first step is the hardest for everything. And it sounds so cliche, but like, you know, a hundred mile race starts with the first step. Like just take a step and see what happens. That was Ken Rideout. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative, movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. I am super psyched to share today's conversation with you. I sync up with Ken Rideout. Ken is the world's fastest marathoner over 50, the winner of the 2023 Gobi March Ultra Marathon. He is the age group world champion at the Chicago Marathon and a six-star world major marathoner. Ken got his athletic start in boxing and is also the co-host of the Fight with Teddy Atlas podcast. If you know Ken or have listened to him on one of the many podcasts he has been on, like Ritual or Whoop, you are going to love this conversation. He is a super authentic, no BS type of guy with some seriously powerful messages that everyone can benefit from, athlete or not. We do a deep dive into Ken's recent win at the Gobi March, which is a 155-mile self-supported seven-day stage ultramarathon through the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. He shares an incredibly visual play-by-play of his experience and journey. We talk a lot about running and training and his secret to unlocking speed. And we focus on what he's doing early days in 2024 from traveling to work and speaking engagements and so much more. Some of my favorite Ken-isms from this conversation, which really got me thinking, are how do you want the world to see you? As we start this new year, think about it. Exercise like your life depends on it, because it does. And the last one, the first step is the hardest for everything. I love these three things that Ken goes into in a much deeper way during our conversation. If you don't know Ken, get ready to be inspired and motivated to get out of your comfort zone. Ken has transformed his life through endurance sports. He got his career start as a prison guard after high school, then got into banking and finance. Along the way, he became addicted to opioids. After hitting rock bottom, Ken turned to running and endurance sports and his incredible wife and kids to get through it all. Today, he is an amazing athlete, a motivator and speaker, inspiring people to confront their fears, get out of their comfort zones, and live their lives to the fullest. Warning, this episode contains lots of F-bombs and swearing, along with some athlete talk around bodily fluids. So I'm sure you're going to make it through, but it's definitely not for kids. P.S. I am super psyched about this week's podcast sponsor, you can and their amazing edge energy gels 
stay tuned for our 20% off code and free offer. Now, on to my conversation with Ken. We have so many people in common. So you first came onto my radar with this woman that I'm friends with, Lauren Ramsey, who works for Jesse Itzler and was helping when I was working with All Day Running Co. And she asked me if I knew you. She's like, you should have Ken on your podcast. He's so cool. (laughs) And then I... (laughs) That's so nice. (laughs) Yeah. And then I heard your podcast. Like, it was like, you know how things sometimes happen in threes and... You know, like you hear something one place, then you see it another place, and then like there's like this ah uh, this aha moment where you're like, okay, it's happening. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, and it's funny when you even when you say that Lauren said that I'm so that Ken's so cool or whatever the verbiage was. It's yeah. like on one hand, I'm like, I can't believe anyone even knows who I am. But on the other hand, if someone doesn't invite me on their show, I'm like, how dare you not invite me on your show? Like, <laughs> you- so my wife, my wife is always like, you realize you put people in a position where they really can't win. If they don't know you, you're pissed. If they know you, you're shocked. And she's like, you can't win. And I realized, yeah, I guess that that's what kind of keeps me going. If I thought that I was, if I really believed that I was cool enough that everyone should know me, maybe I wouldn't do the things I do. I don't know. So it's an interesting dilemma. It's really, I, I share your pain. I'm this... I mean, I'm a Scorpio. I don't know if you believe in any of that crap, but like, I, I feel it. Like, I'm shocked when I meet someone and like they've listened to my podcast, and then I'm angry when I meet someone and they haven't. And I'm, I'm yep. like a walking, like, you know, oxymoron or whatever the word is that I'm looking for, like yep. the whatever. But so then she said, you know, then I heard you on Rich Roll, who I have so much respect for, and he's actually the inspiration behind how I started my podcast because. You know, 10 years ago, I was listening to him. And then I was like, all right, this is my format. I'll never forget this day. I was driving back from a race that I had just done, like an Olympic distance triathlon in Connecticut. And I'm like, I'm going to listen to Ken ride out on Rich Roll. And I was, <laughs> you, I was crying. By the end of the podcast, you are like one of the most inspiring people I've ever heard from on, on so many levels. And then you know, that was such a great conversation. And then, like, I met you in New York, and that was it. I was like, Ken, do you want to be on my podcast? Well, thank you for saying that. It's always, um, even though I would get offended if someone didn't know me, I am always shocked when people say that I'm inspiring, and it's a common theme. And I can't stress this enough to the people listening. Like, I fucking don't know what I'm doing that's inspiring. I swear to God, I, I am just doing what I would, I have been doing this for some and being myself. So when people started to pay attention and find it inspiring, it was alarming because I would say to my wife, like everyone finds me inspiring, but I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know what the formula is. So I'm afraid to make a mistake. But the truth is, I think if I have any superpower, it's being so honest, so brutally honest that people either really like it or are like so offended that someone would say what they really think. And the crazy thing is when people are offended by some truth that I share with them, the truth is they really know that that's the truth. It's just that no one else has said it out loud. There's a lot of things like that where you're like, hey, how do I look in this? Ah, Dude, I wouldn't wear that if I were you. I do it with my wife all the time. She's like, how's this look? I'm like, absolutely not. I'm like, no. No. And she's like, you could have said it nicer. I'm like, okay, that's fair. Yeah. But maybe my lack of filter is uh, appealing to some people, but I'm, I'm incredibly, um, 
uh, humbled by the attention. Uh, I'm incredibly uh, grateful. Like I put a post on, on Strava today. It just said, thank you. I was like, the people on Strava, the community on Strava is so kind to me, yeah. like as a whole, right? Occasionally I'll get a, a random troll or something. And it was a troll that made me write that post today. Cause some guy was like, Oh, you're training too much. That's why you're racing, implying that's why the race in uh, Memphis last weekend sucked. And I'm like, dude, are you fucking serious? You want to give me training advice? Like, I'm not the best, but I mean, what about me? This 52-year-old dad says that you could get more out of me if you had, if you were controlling the training. Like, buzz off, dude. This isn't just about physical fitness. My training for me is more mental than physical. It just so happens that the physical training allowed me to win some races, but I train for my mental health. That's how it started. That's the motivation every day. From a physical standpoint, I'd be like, no, I'm in good shape. I'll take a day off and rest. That yeah. would make common sense if physicality was my only goal, but it's not. And that's what people fail to recognize. The idiots fail to recognize is that it's not just about running faster. For me, it's about staying mentally healthy, and I need that outlet every day to, to be who I am, good or bad. Right. It's exactly that. It's not that it's physical. It's mental. You can only do physically what your body can do when you train, but mentally, it's a game changer. So where does that mindset begin for you and obviously you've are always on a journey to master it but where did it begin i've said this before and i continue to say it it's like uh i think it's honestly insecurity it's like you know people get a, get motivated to let's say run a marathon and they're just cool to show up and finish and that's a noble cause and i would never diminish anyone's journey like that's cool right. I, I get it like I, like for me i hated school i have no interest in getting advanced degrees but I can look at someone with a PhD and be like, I love it. That's great. And they could look at me and be like, dude, you're a lazy sack of shit. You should be able to get an MBA and a PhD. You just don't want to. And I'd say there's a huge difference between being able and being willing. Right. I'm able to do anything. I set my mind to like graduating with like respectable grades. And in my final sociology class, this is crazy. There was a class of like 40 sociology majors at Framingham State and everyone teamed up in teams of two to do their final research project. Two semesters long. It's intimidating. I, I fucking hate school. I, am, I, I hate any kind of busy work, spreadsheets, all of it. They, I partnered with a woman and literally my professor, who was also my advisor, talked the woman out of partnering with me. She's like, he is not a good student and you're going to do all the work. I was so offended. I got the highest grade in the whole fucking class. I out hustled and I grounded, out grinded everybody and got an A minus in this research methods class, which I hated. But I was like, you will fucking not beat me at anything. So when I think about physical challenges and people like I want to run a marathon, for me, when I show up to an, any event, my first thought is like, who's the best people here and what are they going to do? And how do I measure up where I stand right now? And then what do I have to do to beat those people? And that's kind of, listen, I want to be very upfront. This yeah. fucking approach is for everyone. This approach might not be the healthiest. I am very insecure about physical challenges. I have to be the best or I feel bad about myself. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's what I am. That's how I operate. I know that that's my own cross to bear. I don't want anyone else to think he said you should fucking don't do anything I say. Yeah. I am not the role model, but this is. My mindset, this is how I work. When I get when I embark on a new challenge, like the Gobi March in Mongolia. Yeah, I want yeah. When I <clears throat> Yeah. So a friend of mine, Scott Daru, who's the president of Equinox, I was introduced to him by another friend, Gary Brown. And um 
Scott wanted to connect Just Talk Running because he had signed up for this race in four or five weeks last in the, this past um, this past spring. And so I connected with Scott. Hey, what's going on? Oh, tell me about your race. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just he just wanted to connect. Like just he's like, oh, Ken's interesting. I want to connect. And, and I was like, okay, cool. He used to be the dean of Michigan Business School. Interesting guy. I like interesting people. And he started telling me, and I was like, I don't even know what made me say it, but I was like, dude, I bet you I can win that whole race. And I bet, I'm sure he was like, uh, you're fucking crazy. People do this. Like, these people are serious. They've done multiple races. It's a whole series. And and I was like, yeah. Uh, most of the people that do these ultras in running, and I say this with affection, are nerds. And I, myself amongst them. But I was like, it doesn't, I've said this before, it doesn't matter what's real. It matters what I tell myself. Just like you could tell yourself that a situation is scary or you're going to embarrass yourself, you can also say the same things in a, with a positive tone to yourself like yeah fuck it i could in my mind i know that i could embarrass myself and get this, my ass kicked but there's a voice in my head that's like one percent louder that's like no we're kicking ass we're not getting kicked we're doing this long story short i, I reached out to the race director and she was like uh yeah we'd love to have you she must have known like i sent her some articles and stuff because it was sold out and i said here's my profile i'd love to get in the race and she's like okay no, I had never run with a backpack. I had never slept. When I say never, I mean, I slept in a glamping teepee at 29029 with Jesse Isla's right. crew um, and Mark Hodelik. But I had never, like, camped like this roughing it. I'm not interested. I don't like it. The idea of going camping in the woods. I'm like, why the fuck would I do that? I could sit home, watch fights, watch football, play with my kids. Why would I want to, like, sleep on the ground? Yeah. Um, so when she said I could get in, there were roughly four weeks to go, give or take. But in that context, and I now had to get backpack. You know, it was a six-day stage race, 155 miles, self-supported race across the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, none of which I had any experience with. I didn't have it, with the exception of physical running. I knew nothing about the terrain, the gear required. And I just set off on a four-week journey of experimenting with different backpacks. Remember, there's a fucking week's worth of food. So I have like at a 20-pound, at the, at, the, at the start, it's probably 22 pounds of food, mandatory safety equipment, a, a one change of clothes. You know, rec the required gear and food was, I don't know how you get around 20 pounds. Like you could streamline it a little, and some people were pros. So I took towels and bottled water and packed this backpack and made it like between 15 and 16 pounds. So it was still a little bit light and I struggled like a dog. I mean, I'm running in the Nashville heat through, through the month of June and I'm just thinking like, I'm going to die. A 50 mile stage with this fucking backpack, I'm struggling on a 10 mile run to run eight minute miles. And normally I'm like, you know, my comfortable pace is right around seven. So I'm like, man, this, and I'm working. I know my heart comfortable rates pace because I ran with you. <laughs> and I would not so <laughs> yeah so anyway i get there and i don't know anyone i know scott but i've never even seen him we meet for the first time in ulaanbaatar in the capital of mongolia and i mean this place is like it's third world there's nothing nice going on it's like very rough yeah um rough for me i'm a big baby i need to like i I'm, i like to live a posh life i grew up poor i don't want to ever live like that again yeah um so i get there and i'm like i mean i'm scrambling for everything i'm missing a, a utility knife and this stuff you have to have it because they have a checklist of like do you you spread out all your gear you have a whole day where they inspect everyone's shit 
So Scotty's sitting next to me and I, I run across the street. I buy this gigantic jackknife thing. It probably weighs five times more than it should because I forgot to bring one. But you have to have it. So I get this thing. Um, and and one of the other mandatory equipment was uh, face masks and COVID tests. I thought they were providing the test, but they're like, no, you needed your own tests. And I'm like, so I got all my shit spread out and Scott's right beside me. And the woman's kneeling right in front of me. And she's like, no, you need the tests and stuff. You have to go find these somewhere in Ulaanbaatar. We're leaving in an hour. There's a huge buses. So I point, I don't know what made me think of this. Maybe like my fucking street kid personality. I say it to her, like, look at that guy over there. He doesn't have things. And Scott's beside me and all his shit's laid out. I grab his whole pack of tests and masks. I'm like, oh, shit, I do have the masks and tests. I got them right here. I, I didn't think I had them. And she's like, that's strange. Uh, okay. Checks it off. She, I go, do I have everything? And she's like, yep, you can pack it all back up. So she walks away. I put the stuff back in and throw the stuff back. <laughs> he doesn't even know I've taken it. That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and off we go. They, they're probably going to hear this and be like, what a dirtbag. But, you know, you know what? at this point, you're in survival mode. Yeah. We're racing. <laughs> That's what it's about. So, so up until that point, like you had never, had you heard of this race? Like, what, did you ever no, want to go to not Mongolia? until he told me about it. Yeah. Were you planning no. to do an ultra? No. I mean, I, w- I knew that eventually I would try a 50 or a, and or a 100 miler, but it wasn't on the radar. And the truth is I had just – this is probably in May, and I had just done Tokyo at the end of March and won. So I had completed the challenge that I had set for myself to win my age group and all the marathon majors. I got um, first in, in four of them and second in two. And, um, and I was like, shit, now what am I going to do with myself? And as soon as I heard about this, I'm like, perfect, a new challenge. At least I have something on the radar. And uh, so then we they pack us up into buses and drive us out to the middle of the desert on a Saturday night. Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, it's six days. We'll start on the morning of Sunday, and then we'll have five nights in the tent. They're like, no, no, no. We sleep in the tents the night before we start. I'm like, oh, for Christ's sakes, one extra night in the tent. <laughs> so yeah. I had a – they – they had, they gave you the option of a communal tent that was they set it up they do everything so when you get into the camp each day it's predetermined yeah. distance like 20 to 50 miles you get into the camp it's nice they got it set up like a semicircle and they've got water and boiling water so you can pour the boiling water into your MREs like meals ready to eat yeah. and um and so I have a one man tent I go to look at my tent and set it up I've never opened it like my wife's like you better open that tent and try it out before you get there I'm like nah it's good. In hindsight, I had a fucking one-man tent that was for a bike trip. It was like it, it, it was it was like smaller than a woman's clutch purse. And I'm like, damn, this tent looks really small. And when I get there, there was no fucking limit on the size. Some guys had tents that they could have lived on Everest for a month. So oh I'm God. like, and could because the organizers transport the tents and the water from camp to camp. Everything else you right. carry, so right. you don't have to carry a tent, and you could bring a supplemental backpack. Because one year it was so cold. So you have, not a backpack, a supplemental sleeping bag. So you have to have your mandatory sleeping bag that's good down to zero degrees. So it's like a certain size. You know, they're super high tech. It looks like a big thermos when it's folded up and compressed. But then you could bring an additional one. So I said to the woman, I'm like, so theoretically, what if I brought a fucking gigantic Arctic Circle sleeping bag? She's like, yeah, it's good. You just had to have a dry bag that you put it in and then tra- they transport it within it. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to get the biggest back, the biggest sleeping bag. It was called like the Big Bertha or something. It was a huge green sleeping bag. It was awesome. And I had a sleeping pad. So every day I'd get to the camp and there would be my sleeping bag in my dry bag and um, and my shit tent, which I didn't use. Because when I opened my tent and looked at it, I'm like, fuck this. I said to the organizer, 
my tent's all jammed up in transportation. Like, can I get in one of the big tents? Like, I don't want this one man tent. And it's about to rain. So the woman says, um, yeah, yeah, you can get in. There's a tent right there with three women in it. You're welcome to jump in there. So I walk over like, hey, what's up? And these were like, there was uh, an Indonesian woman, Thai, uh, sorry, a Chinese woman from Hong Kong, uh, 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 a Thai woman and an Irish woman. And uh, the Irish woman was like, tough as nails she was like almost not having it she's like what are you doing in here like who are you and i was like oh mary just told me i could be in the tent with you guys so i'm in the tent because now she's being super tough with me. we end up being great friends dawn but initially i was like fuck you i'm in this tent what are you talking about what am i doing here what are you doing here you get out of here <laughs> we, were, we were like ready to kill each other oh my god so we get in there so we get in there and i'm like now we're on top of each other and you have your race clothes. And when you're done racing, like, you know, just hanging in those clothes, I'm rinsing them out, trying to dry them out. They're all I have. And I have a, a pair of like shorts and a, and a sleeveless shirt for the camp just, just to get out of these dirty clothes. Yeah. So every day I get in there and they're in there and I'm like, um, girls, I've got to change. So I'm just going to stand over here and go to buy the third or fourth time. They're like, Ken, enough, just change. No one gives a shit. <laughs> at, <laughs> there were moments when at one point I looked around and I'm like, we're all naked in here. And I'm, and we're all, I mean, it, it, there was nothing sexy going on. It's like everyone's dirty and gross, Yeah. but it was just crazy how quickly we got out of that mode of like, Hey, are you guys okay with this to like nobody naked cares. every day? Yeah. So they, they, they were like, Oh yeah, we had a guy in here last time and he kept peeing in his water bottle. I'm like, what an animal who would pee in his water bottle <laughs> that night. That night, I wake up in the middle of the night. It's raining sideways. I'm like, our fucking tent's going to blow away. It's like a monsoon. I, I mean, I, I was almost crying. I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? This is crazy. Everything's wet. And now I'm like, you know, I'm 52. I got to pee three times a night. I wake up. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to pee. How am I going to get out and get back in here? I was like, fuck this. I just took the water bottle, went over near the door, peed in the water bottle, threw it out the... Oh, by the end of the trip, I was peeing in that water bottle, washing my dirty underwear and socks in there with a dry. I had a little tiny bottle of concentrated soap, yeah. shaking it up. I couldn't care less. I pour boiling water in there, swish it around, shake it out. I mean, at this point, you're like survival mode. I don't. Yeah. I could give a shit about some urine. I think I was like that before I started doing triathlon. I was like, you know, you could, <laughs> I could never have that conversation or even imagine. And then now I'm like, oh yeah, sure. I pee on my bike, like in my wetsuit, like whatever. <laughs> I don't care. In, in Tokyo, I had to pee so bad in the middle of the race. I was like, I kept looking for a spot where I could stop on the side of the road, but it's through like, yeah. you know, a, a, a bustling city. So I was like, fuck it. I just, uh, aid station coming up. This is a good tip for anyone listening. People yeah. ask this, these kind of questions a lot, but I'm just running. And it's like, I, I understand that feeling of like, I can't pee when I'm running fast. But the truth is when you have to pee bad, you will pee. Yeah. So I'm, I, I just, I, I'm running and I'm like, I, I have got to pee. It's like, it's, it's fucking with me mentally. So I'm yeah. like, I just stopped peeing. And I mean, <laughs> just like <laughs> pee everywhere. Shoes are yeah. soaked. Everything. But what, what I did was, and here's a tip for everyone. I, you do that right as you're coming up on an aid station. So as I go through, I grab water as many as yeah. I could. And I'm just pouring it on me just yeah. to like neutralize some of it. And off it you go. I mean, at that point. Then, but we've dude, in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. In Chicago, I ran 229, and I mean, I was moving. I was very steady throughout the whole race. So the whole race, I'm running like a 540 pace. So I only give you that context because at like 23 miles, guy runs – no, two or three people pass me. When you run negative or, or even splits, no one's passing you on the back half. Very, yeah. very rare. Yeah. So a guy runs up on me, and I'm like, holy shit, there's a guy passing me. And I'm like, what is that smell? 
this guy runs by me covered in shit. And I was like, damn, that's where I draw the line. I'm stopping to shit. Yeah, I'm not going to, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. But then I started to think like, not only is poopy pants run, it, did this guy poop his pants, but he's running right past me. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm on a good one. I'm like, damn, I'm getting passed by poopy pants. It lit a fire under my ass, but I also didn't want to stay too close because it was like oh my God. running behind a dead out. body. I was like, oh, it was so startling. One of those things where you're like, I can't get this out of my head now. Anyway, I digress. Back to the Gobi Desert. Yeah, back to the desert. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the first day I woke up, I, no one knew me. And I can't even say the people ended up being really nice. But the first day I was like, these motherfuckers are clicky. No one even is trying to talk to me. I'm yeah. like, I felt kind of offended. I was like angry. But that's when I do my best work, when I'm like, create enemies. And again, they might have been like... Yeah, it sounds like cycling. They might have been thinking like, this guy's a standoffish asshole, which is, they, they could think that, but I was just like anyone, like a little kid. I was like scared and intimidated and just like in my in my head. Anyway, we take off the first day and it's like, I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to see what people do and hang with them. I don't think anyone... If we all have to do the same thing, there's no way that anyone's done much more training than I have. So I know that my base of fitness is there. I don't have the experience of trail running and backpack running and all that shit that goes with it. And um, we took off and very quickly, you could tell there were just five guys that were going to decide the race. Everyone else was blown off the back, but we were legging it. And um, it really was like a, a, a foolish first stage. Everyone was trying to kill each other. And I was with the three or four leaders uh, with about four miles to go. And when I tell you this race was fucking crazy, it was across pastures and fields and plains and crossing rivers multiple times up the side of a mountain, not on a trail, just you would follow little pink flags every one or 200 yards. So it was easy to see, but it was still like, why are we going right up this hill? The worst is you go up the side of a mountain and then realize just out of sight that you go back down the whole way. So if you had seen that flag in a distance, theoretically, you could have cut off like a half a mile to a mile of bullshit. And there were people playing little games, but if you get caught, you'd get penalized. But there were definitely people like, you know, when we were in a group, we were trying to follow the flags. Like if you could see the flags arching in the distance, you wouldn't hug the flags. You'd try to like, you know, cut the corners as much as you could without being blatant cheaters. Uh, but there were all little games like that. And we got to the last hill on that first day. And I was with the Israeli guy and a Swiss mountaineer, two like sick, sick athletes, um, David Dudu Dano. They called him David, the Israeli guy. And uh, Reinhold um, uh, Gold from, I think Gold, from Switzerland. Sick mountaineer type dude in Israel. The Israeli guy was um, special forces agent, like okay. bad, bad dude. Little guy, but fit as hell. They pulled out their poles when we got to the side of this mountain. When I say a mountain, I'm talking like a black diamond ski mountain. Okay. It's straight up. Yeah. And they start fucking hooking up that with the poles. And I'm like, dude, at one point I got my hands on my knees and I'm stopping and taking a deep breath. I mean, for me to stop and catch my breath, like, I, I, I can't believe what's happening. How are they going? And I'm getting killed. Like, I'm going to get destroyed here. And then when we get to the top... We're literally running across the ridge line, but not up on the ridge, just off of it. So you're on like a 90 degree angle or something similar and running. And I'm like, if you fall here, and I'm not exaggerating, you will die. Like yeah. it is fucking dangerous. Every stage I'd be like, how did they get insurance for this? Like someone's going to get hurt here. Who created this race? Like how did you could never do this in the US? Yeah. Okay. Never. Yeah. It was so dangerous. 
So then, then I come down, I can see them off in the distance, like a movie. And I'm like, just watching them get smaller and smaller. And I'm like, why is my body not doing this? Now, keep in mind, the first stage is Sunday. I got in uh, Sunday morning. I got in there like Friday afternoon. Okay. Uh, oh, you know, like a 30 hour journey. And, you know, usually I get to a race one day for every hour of time change. So in Europe, I get there five, six days early in Tokyo, at least 10 days. Now I've got like three days. And so I think that I was, and I slept in the tent one of those nights, didn't sleep at all. So I think that there was an element of jet lag and trying to get my body on track. Obviously I wasn't a hundred percent flying over there two days before this started, but I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying like, my brain was like, fucking go. And my body was like stuck in quicksand. Yeah. So then speaking of quicksand, the last like, um, half a mile you could see the camp in the distance and it, it the course kind of dips down i'm like oh it looks like there used to be a river in here so it's like a dried riverbed but it's not dry it's like ankle deep mud when i tell you people were coming in head to toe like as if they just been pulled from quicksand i fell down a couple of times but kind of like kept some coordination together so that i was just a little dirty but my god people were flipping and flopping in the mud it was so i'm thinking every day is gonna be like this this is fucking crazy but that was one of the harder days. How many people were there? Like 125. And and sure enough, first day, like a handful of people dropped out. I was like, damn, this is a long way to go to give up that easily. And anytime someone dropped out, it was like uh, seagulls around their gear trying to get food and stuff from them, anything you might have needed and forgot, which would come in handy. Sounds like the Hunger Games. Oh, it, it very much is like... We're all in this together, but as soon as someone catches you slipping, they're like eating your carcass like cannibals. Yeah. So then the next day was 28 miles, which is longer than I've ever run. And again, I, the, after the first day, I'm, I'm destroyed. I'm like, holy shit, everyone is either they're going to kill me or they're destroyed too. Yeah. So the second day, I just sit off the back a little bit, maybe like a couple hundred yards. And eventually I roll up on those two guys again. So it was just the three of us all the whole time. And then there was a South Korean kid who kept coming into the mix, but he was way off. Um and so I was being more strategic there and slowly I just ran up on them without trying and I just kept steady. You know, we're talking, but not a lot. Yeah. And then at one point I look up and I'm like, holy shit, they dropped, they've dropped way off. Are they fucking with me to see if I go off the front too hard? Maybe I can't navigate as well. When there's three of you, it's hard to make a mistake. But when you're off the front, you're looking for these flags. So it takes a shitload of focus. Because yeah. think about it. If you go the wrong way, like you have to backtrack. It's a nightmare. So long story short, I, I won that stage by like 10 minutes, but right towards the end, I fell down. And when I fell down, I, I busted my elbow open real bad and my backpack, the strap ripped off the bag, like destroyed. Oh my God. So, oh, I was like, I can't believe this is how this ends. Cause you, it's impossible to run without it. Like I'm holding the strap, it's 20 pounds and I'm running, trying to re, 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 um, position it. And I get in after the after that stage. So now I get in, I'm covered in blood. My backpack's ripped and it's it's destroyed. So I go to the medical tent. I get some sutures and a needle. And the doctors are trying to help me with whatever they have. <laughs> in hindsight, it was so stupid. I'm trying to stitch it with like thread. But this thing needed like fucking nylon, like, you know, fishing like line for like stitches. to catch a great yeah. white. Sh- yeah. Like you need the fishing line to catch a great white to hold this thing on. So eventually I cut holes in the bag and I zip tie the whole thing together and it seems to work. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm back in business. Now I've spent like three hours working on this while everyone else is chilling, relaxing, getting ready for the next day. Sure enough, the next day we get cracking. It starts right out the gate with um, 
straight up the side of a mountain like rocks like you're on your hands and knees crawling up there's okay. no running at this point it's like, i'm like how is everyone going to get over this this is dangerous as hell i mean it's really dangerous and then you have to go down the other side so i get down and um the swiss kid gets right off the front he gets over those rocks so fast and, and it's dangerous so i'm like i'm not i'm letting him go here he's clearly has this skill set and I'm with the Israeli kid. He gets a little off the front of me as, as well. He's probably, they're, they're both probably 40-ish. I was just going to I call say. everyone a kid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I call everyone kids so uh, so no one gets confused. So so the Israeli's off the front. Uh, the, the Swizzy's off the front. The Israeli's like in sight. And then eventually we get down and we're going through a desert. And there's like kind of a, it's not a road, like a, a like kind of a road where cars have gone. But it's desert. It's like sand and it's sand dunes. But we're on a half-ass road that people have driven on. So it's not ankle-deep sand, but it's loose. So eventually I roll up on an Israeli guy, and right as I get to him, the fucking zip ties and everything blow apart. And I'm like, oh, my bad. So I had lost my heavy-ass knife at some point. The heavy-ass knife that was so heavy, I'm like, I must have accidentally on purpose lost this gigantic knife after check-in. So there's, I said to this really guy, I'm like, dude, let me borrow your knife. I'm, I got to cut, a, I'm, I cut a hole through the backpack through all layers and I pulled a thick strap through and I just double it back and tie it off. And yeah. I'm like, this is all I can do. I've got like, I probably have 18, my 18 to 20 miles to go at this point. And it, and it held, got in. And then, um, I came in second that day. So now I'm 12 minutes down and a woman, um, was dropping out after that stage and uh, I asked her if she would trade backpacks with me because she, when you drop out, you can't just leave and go home. You're, you're with this caravan. You're with the traveling circus until we're done. We are in no man's land. Yeah. We're not near a road. We've like all gone together through the, through the desert and we're going to come out the other side. There's no shortcuts. There's no getting out. There's no get out of jail. So I tie up my bag and, I, and I've got it to the finish and then she gives me hers and it's now – we're three stages in and now the 50 miler is coming up the next day. So now I've got a new backpack that doesn't really fit. And by the way, I'm like completely worn raw on my shoulders and my waist where the straps are. And I've got this thick elastic type tape that the doctors gave me in the medical tent. And I just, I literally, they sprayed adhesive right onto the open wounds, which might as well have been gasoline. It's so, it burns so bad. And then stuck the adhesive right on it. So it wasn't coming. So now it's like, glued to my wounds but it's not like tearing the shit out of me anymore so i'm just like bandaged up and uh we're not showering so i don't have to worry about changing the bandages <laughs> and um 50 mile day that's insane it, it it pissed down rain the night before at one point right before everyone got in you know because there was such a gap in where everyone finished i was in the camp with the israeli and the swiss guy and was standing there looking around and all of a sudden like a a, a squall comes through it fucking takes like four or five tents and throws them into the desert. Just lifts them up. I'm like, oh my God, if you were in that tent, you might die. It lifted the tent and launched it hundreds of yards. So I went over to the tent quickly and closed all the windows closed because my shit's in there. I'm like, I don't want my all my gear to blow across the desert. So I tied, I, I closed all the windows and doors airtight so that it couldn't, like the air, if, if, if you had the door open, the air would get in there, fill up the tent and then lift it off. So um, the next day I got my new backpack. We got a 50 mile stage. And by the way, less than a mile into that 50 mile stage, we cross a river waist deep. So your shoes and socks are soaked at the beginning of the 50 mile stage, which was so funny. Cause you think about 
the start of a marathon, everything's perfect. My shoes are tied just right. right. Here you're like, you know, like special forces. Like, all right, listen, we're going to fucking go through the swamp and then we're going to get up and start navigating. Like, won't we be soaking wet and dirty and cold after we get out of the swamp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. Minor detail. That's what it was like. like. All right. Just dropping in here to give a shout out to our partners at UCAN. Are you tired of the spike and crash and GI distress that comes with sugar-based sports nutrition? It's time to give UCAN a try. UCAN utilizes steady-release carbs instead of sugar, so you don't feel the highs and lows in energy. It's been years since I've been able to use gels until I discovered UCAN Edge Energy Gels. When you're out training and racing for hours day after day, it's nice to have smart fueling options to boost your performance. Plus, they taste great, are the right consistency, and you don't need to chase them with water. My favorite flavor is pineapple. Also, UCAN's award-winning Edge Energy Gels last longer than other gels, less for you to carry. Top U.S. triathletes Olympian Katie Zafaris and Tim O'Donnell, along with marathon runners Emily Sisson, Sarah Hall, Emma Bates, Kira D'Amato, all rely on UCAN to fuel their training and recovery. Level up your race and training nutrition with UCAN. Go to UCAN.co slash Marnie to redeem your free, exclusive Edge sample pack. All you pay is shipping. And to save 20% off any UCAN products, head over to UCAN.co and use our code Marnie. Now, back to our conversation. So at this point, are you thinking, like, at this point, while you're doing all of this, are you internally sort of, like, freaking out, like, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening? Or are you laughing because it's so absolutely phenomenally ridiculously crazy that you're in this situation and like you volunteered to do it i wouldn't say that i was laughing but i certainly was thinking to myself i will never do this again and i was crossing the days off a little calendar that i had drawn onto um onto the back of one of the safety equipment packages that i had as a goof to the girls and i'm like one more day down girls one more day till we get released so i was treating it like a jail sentence and i was like i'm I'm never doing this again but that actually helped me because in my mind i'm like i'm never gonna do this again i fucking promise you i'm not leaving here with regrets if i lose this race because i know if i lose i'll want to do it again to fix it and i don't want to do it again because that's what happened the first time i went to kona i didn't finish and that's what basically transformed my whole journey into endurance sports. The first time in Kona, I got out on the run and just quit. I was just like, I'm getting fucking killed. I have a terrible result. And I convinced myself like a professional athlete, like, eh, you're not going to be in the money, quit. And I'm like, who the fuck are you to quit at anything? I was so, I mean, I walked back crying and I was like, I can't believe I've done this. Immediately, I have regret. And I was telling my wife, literally with tears in my eyes, I'm like, I am a fucking everything that I detest. I'm a quitter. I can't believe this. I have no fucking guts. I, I'm, I'm, I'm disgusted with myself. And I really was. And I don't say that for effect. It's just the truth. And my wife's like, fucking do it again then. She, she hates triathlon because it takes so much time. Yeah. But she's like, if it's going to impact you this much and you really believe this, fucking do it again. Like, all, like she was like tougher than I was. And I was like, Right there, I was. I'm doing it. I went and qualified the next year in in uh, Whistler. I finished like um, second or third in the age group. Went back to Kona, did a 9:39, and was like off to the races. And then a year after that, I did. I qualified a third time and in Wisconsin, and I won my age group there and was like sixth overall. And that was like the best Ironman race I've ever had. But uh, back to Mongolia. Yeah. On that last day, I was feeling good in the beginning. We were running like 
eight or nine minute miles. Again, you have to remember we're running across like, imagine you're driving on the highway and you see a bunch of cows out in a field. We're running across that field because everywhere we went, cows, sheep, wild horses, like millions of wild horses. It was so beautiful. Yeah, that's I just didn't appreciate all the scenery, but I've got some epic videos. Actually, I can send you some if you want to put some into the uh, interview right here. I've got the next to the last day was a full marathon and we take off and it's torrential rain, thunder. And as we're running, we like run right up on a pack of wild horses, me and the Swiss guy. And I'm like, dude, I got to get this on camera. And I'm running. You can hear the horses like boom, boom, boom oh when they God. start yeah. running. It's, just, it's crazy. They're like gorgeous wild horses. Yeah. Um, so so we, we take off. The three of us are together. And at one point, I just ran next to the Israeli guy and I was like, dude. I heard this once from Jesse Itzler and Chad Wright that they were running a race and Chad said, uh, yo, did I ever tell you that I never get tired, Jesse? So I ran right over next to the Swiss guy, kind of clown, not the Swiss guy, the Israeli guy, kind of clowning around with them. I'm like, hey, doodle, did I tell you that I never get tired? I feel fucking great today. You want to pick it up? And I don't know if it got in his head or what, but within a mile, he was walking behind <laughs> us and it was just, now it's just, now it's just me and Reinhold off the front and we're like, this camaraderie there you want to beat each other but at the same time you're like we're in the middle of nowhere there's a le- there's a element of like okay let's you know we're kind of looking out for each other we're sharing water here and there it's like we're friends so about 35 miles in with maybe 15 miles ago he's like oh i gotta walk a little which i was like okay great i'm, I'm fucking so tired right so we're walking from a flag just like in a triathlon let's walk to that flag we'll run too right so we're doing that and then eventually he's like I got to sit down and I'm like, Oh dude, don't sit down, man. We got to get to the next checkpoint and get some more water. You can recharge, get out of the sun. Remember we're in the desert. It's hot. And, uh, he's like, no, no, I got to sit down. And he's such a good sportsman and, uh, honorable guy. I was like, dude, just give me your backpack and we'll at least keep walking. And when we get there, you'll be good to go. Cause they've got water and, you know, funny enough, the only thing they ever gave you was water, but at the 35 mile checkpoint, on the 50-mile stage, they had cans of Coke. Like a bonus. Surprise. You know I drank like a six-pack of yeah. Cokes. I was like, no, 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 no. I haven't had sugar. I haven't had anything for five days, four days. So um, I go, listen, they probably have Coke at the next one. Let's just get there. We'll get one. And he was, he was on death's door. So he eventually sits down. I'm shielding him with my body, trying to keep the sun off him. I'm pouring my water. And I said, now, we only have so much water between right. checkpoints, right? You, you, you could take as much as you want, but you're going to carry it. So eventually, a support vehicle comes by looking for us, and um, they start rendering care. And I'm like, you guys got him? Are you good? Everyone's good? Okay, later. And I just took off and ran the fastest, like, 10K of my life, won that stage. And that's where I blew the race open. I had, like, a 90-minute lead at that point. So then the next day was the marathon where we saw the horses. Reinhold and I just ran together the whole time. I mean, we were pushing. And then with about two miles to go, there was a super steep downhill, and he's uh, trains in Switzerland. He ran down the hill so much faster than me. I'm like, you son of a bitch. We've been working together, and now he dusted me with a mile to go. So he got off the front. He, he won by like a minute. I could see him. And then we at the end, it was gorgeous. The, la- the last consequential stage, 26.2 miles, and it finished with a cross, like a, h- a hundred yards across a gorgeous flowing river, like really flowing. They had a rope across so you could hold on because you-, you could get washed down the river. I mean, it was right. fucking raging. But it was so 
fitting and perfect because as I'm coming through, I like take off my backpack, hold it up over my head and like dunk myself under. So I'm like, boom, two birds with one stone. I just did my daily shower and yeah. all my clothes are rinsed out. Now I can just go take them off and let them dry, you know, because every day they're caked with salt. And, um, you know, the last stage was five miles and uh, my Irish friend, uh, Killian Ryan, uh, of Ryan Air fame, he says, uh, yo, you won, man, 90 minutes, only five miles. You could walk the last stage and let someone else win this stage. And I was like, brother, I would never disrespect this race and let someone win. You will have to fucking kill me to beat me on this last stage. I said, I can't I can't roll in there in third place with the leader's jersey on. It's like the Tour of France. I got the fucking yellow leader's bim. Yeah. We're, we're racing to the death. And sure enough, the Swiss guy was like, we were drag racing, man. We I, we were running as fast as we could for five miles. Like, and it, so you went. We went up and over a little mountain, and then into the little village where Genghis Khan used to live, and it ended in like this old fortress that used to be Genghis Khan's joint. And dude, we were just running through this little village, like a little like a little town, yeah. and through the side streets and just legging it. And it was the first time we were on paved roads. And uh, yeah, I came in first there and they had pizza and beer and I'm not even a drinker, but I think I drank like four or five beers, ate like, I, no shit, I ate two full pizzas. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what was the just, first thing you uh, ate when you came back? You must have been starving. Oh, I, I couldn't wait to have that pizza. And then we, then the worst part is then we get back on these shitty old school buses and we've got like a seven hour bus ride back to Ulaanbaatar. Everyone's on there dirty and sweaty. And on the ride out there and the ride back into town, I purposely got on the bus super early so I could sit in the front so I could see where I'm going in the next to the bus driver. Like I get yeah. car sick. So uh, then we stopped a couple times at stores and people, you know, with people in Snickers bars, potato chips, just anything. Yeah. Full fat Coke, the whole shits. And uh, yeah, that was it. I won. I couldn't believe it. And on one hand, I couldn't believe it. On the other hand, I'm like, get me out of here. Ace, I'm trying to change my flight to the earliest flight out of Dodge. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. But it was a great experience. I would recommend it to everyone if you want to see what you're made of. I, you know, when I told my wife I was thinking of doing it, she was like, well, you always preach about doing things that make you uncomfortable. If you're scared and you're nervous, like, sounds like you should do it. And I was like, I'm doing it because I'm scared to death. Yeah. And I I think that that's a, the part that a lot of people fail to recognize is like, I don't care who you are. If you're the winner or the last place finisher, you're not immune to feeling nervous or scared. If you're, if one person's scared just that they might not finish, the other person's scared that they might not win. It's the same exact feeling and it's the same we all have an opportunity to react however we see fit. It's like the the coward and the hero uh, feel the same emotion when presented with a fearful situation. The only variable is how do you react in the face of adversity? Do you cower and run or do you stand and face the fear and do what you have to do to confront it? It's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as being like, okay, I might lose this fight, but this guy's been bullying me for too long. It's on. I'm doing this. It's yeah. it, it, whether it's a fight or 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 taking a professional exam for some qualification. It's like, yeah, well, you know, everyone feels the same feelings. It's just the only variables. How do you react? Right. I say, you know, within within reason, you confront the fear. You do what you think is right, but you never let the fear make you do things that you're not going to be proud of. Everybody has that at a different level, right? Like you said, there's, you know, everybody has a different experience around like what fear they're facing. And your mindset is, is like the, the key to overcoming that. And if you can have, everyone doesn't have to be like you, 
going to the desert to do an ultra, right? There can be maybe smaller incremental things that they can do to overcome fears. But like they have, I think, you know, you always talk about commitment and, you know, when you say something, you commit to it. And I think, you know, talk to me about like, how do you convince your mind to get through that like hurt, that challenge or that point where you're like freaking the hell out, you're scared, you're in the face of fear. It could be like work, it could be a triathlon. For me, it's like going in the ocean and swimming. Like for you, it was doing the ultra in the desert. Like what is it in your mind that like... It applies to a lot of things, not just the, the Gobi desert race was just the uh, most recent example, but it was right. the same exact feeling about getting sober. I was so afraid of going through the detox withdrawal period of opioid abuse that I spent, and I'm not exaggerating, five to 10 years avoiding that two week period of feeling like suicidal and sick. And, um, I think when you go through something like that, like there is nothing in life that I have ever encountered that is harder than going through opioid withdrawal. Nothing. Fucking heartbreak. Nope. Emotional pain. Nope. This is your body being drained of all um, like dopamine, serotonin. You, you, You artificially spike those chemicals so many times in your brain physically that nothing else in in nature can create that again for you and when you're going through the first couple of weeks of this withdrawal period you're at negatives you're you're negative those drugs so i don't care who you are like if anyone who's suffered with depression will tell you like i'm just so sad i don't know why everything in my life is great but why do i want to kill myself i don't want to live anymore that's how and when you feel like that you know, I'd go to, I'd try to get sober for a few days a week. And then I'd be like, I don't want to kill myself. My only option is to get high again. I'm not tough enough to keep doing this. And then eventually I was like, fuck this. I am tough enough. And I just went through the tunnel. You know, it's like, there's a light at the end of that tunnel. Just go. And just imagine if you had to swim underwater and then swim through a tunnel and someone's like, just trust me, keep going. And you're like, I'm swimming, swimming. Fuck this man. If I don't turn now, I'm I'm never going to make it back. And I don't know how much further it is. It's that kind of feeling of like, yeah. I don't know if I can get there. And, 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 you know, I, I know I've done five days, but what if it's another five days? I can't do it. And you turn around and get high. Yeah. That's the only way I can describe it. So when I think about any of these physical challenges, I look at it like, how do you want the world to see you? Do you want to see Pete? Do you want to feel proud of yourself? Yeah. Because if, if you find me inspiring, I can't stress this enough. I am a very average person. I have, not, I have no superior physical skills. I am 5'10", 165 pounds. I'm an average. I could have had average speed in college. You know, I ran like a 5.040, like, which isn't good. Yeah. Uh, I played quarterback. I, I'm telling you, and everything that you find inspiring or that you might appreciate about me physically, yeah, I – created this and you can too all you have to do is fucking try as hard as you can towards a goal it can be anything if you love the guitar you can be one of the best guitar players in the world if you play the guitar more than everyone else yeah and i spent 90 minutes a day running and then lifting weights three or four nights a week and the lifting weights even then it wasn't about aesthetics or like oh, i gotta lift weights like you know yes i didn't want to look like a runner so i felt like i i have to do something i'm getting right. so skinny but eventually it became like mental health work. Like I'd hit an afternoon lull and, you know, since we, since COVID and I was working from home and now living in Nashville, I have a gym in the basement, which is like, I mean, I've got like a commercial gym in the basement. Right. So for me, I shoot down there 
bang out 20, 30 minutes of intense weightlifting. Even when I don't want to, I'm like, okay, 20, 30 minutes, I can hold my breath for that long. I'm doing this. And eventually you do this so many times that you're like, nah, the feeling of not doing it sucks so much more than the 20 minutes of being miserable, just pushing through it. And I play little tricks with myself like, all right, I'm going to go down there and lift weights. I'll just do two sets of everything in 10 minutes and I'll be done. And then, you know, eventually you're like, it's like, it's like doing a track workout. I've got 10 by 800. I can't do it. Let me just do five and then I'll reassess. And inevitably you're like, uh, let me do two more. No, you've already done seven. Just go for the whole 10. Yeah. So whatever you have to say or tell yourself to get the ball rolling, you know, yeah. get the ball yeah. in motion, it will stay in motion. It's just getting over that mental hurdle of like taking the first step. The first step is the hardest for everything. Yeah. And it sounds so cliche, but like, you know, a hundred mile race starts with the first step. Like just take a step and see what happens. Uh, like I said to Rich after I won in uh, Mongolia, I was like, Rich, I'm not trying to be funny, but like, what else can I do if I try? Like, I didn't want to do that. I was afraid. I didn't want to try. But how many people out there could do some epic shit if they just tried? And how many people are out there crippled with fear and they're like incapacitated by the fear of failing? Whether it's the fear, fear of getting hurt or the fear of telling people, hey, I'm doing this and then you yeah. fail. Like, that's a real thing. Like, when I told everyone... First of all, I told everyone I was doing this race among the people that mattered to me. But then I also told some, you know, not only did I tell a bunch of people that I told all the people that are important to me, but I also, because it was, you know, there was, it was expensive. I mean, just a plane ticket alone was $17,000 yeah. to get to Mongolia. So I reached out to a few brand partners that I've worked with over the years. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I got some incredible sponsorships, but then I said to my wife, I'm like, oh my God, be careful what you wish for. Now I feel the same pressure a professional athlete would feel. I've got brands that have like aligned their brand with me. And I'm like, holy shit, the pressure's on. Yeah. And so I didn't feel pressure to win, but I absolutely felt pressure to like you empty to the it. tank and win or die trying. Yeah. And uh, that pressure was real, <laughs> you know? And so... When you think about things like that, I always think about things, try to keep things in perspective and in the right context. So when I think about like, like for someone who might be thinking, I want to try one of those races, look at what I did. I'm an idiot. I won that race. Of course you can finish that. You can absolutely finish this race. If yeah. you have any remote level of fitness, you can do this. Even if you walk the whole thing, you can do it and it's worth it. And I would encourage everyone to try something like this. And you have a lot of time by yourself to figure out who you really are. Right. And, and what kind of what you're made of. And also like now, you know, 2023 is coming to a close. Right. So obviously this is one of your big wins for the year. I mean, yes. and it's huge, like on a mental level on a physical level, you, you literally won. Do you have any plans for 2024? Do you make plans? Are you just like waiting? For I don't invite? No. <laughs> I had plans all through 2023, right? Because I knew I had to run Tokyo to get the last of the major marathons. And I knew that I was running Chicago because that was the age group world championships, which was the other like big win that I had this year, Mongolia. And winning the age group world championships in Chicago was like earth shattering to me, like, you know, move me to tears type moment. And then, you know, Mongolia was in the middle of Tokyo and um, Chicago. But I haven't thought about anything for 2024. I would like to do a 50 and or 100 mile race, but I don't have any plans. I kind of like I kind of like having no plans for a little while because I don't feel I, I, I need the pressure to continue to push myself versus just going through the motions. Because yeah. as crazy as it sounds like that sharpness required for racing is very hard to get like. I'm always fit 
relatively speaking, but being fit and being sharp are two different things. And I, as an example, I ran 229 in Chicago in October. Then last weekend, I ran the Memphis Marathon hell-bent on winning and rocked up thinking, okay, if I run 230, I'm going to be in the mix to win. I ran through halfway at like 114.50, another kid right behind me, and just fell apart. I had been sick like 10 days before. Right yeah. after I got back from New York, I got I got sick, had a cold, took some antibiotics. And as an example, what I mean about fit and sharp, like when I'm sharp, like I'm, 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 I'm grinding every step. When I'm fit and not sharp, I'm surviving. And right. I end up running 234 there coming in third, which fucking blows because the kid won with 230.20. It stinks to have the opportunity if you if I had executed to possibly win a major yeah. marathon like the Memphis Marathon and then to not win. I mean, second or third really doesn't matter. I only wanted to win, which, right. but again, this is, I'm not saying this to other people like, right. this fuck is this guy. This is Who's he think he is? Yeah. This, this is fine. me. You know, like if, this is my personal goal. I just, I'm just sharing with you what I'm thinking, whereas other people might not be bold enough or confident enough to tell you the truth. Like, right. this is the truth. This is what I think. And by the way, can I just tell you, yeah. the day before the race, if you like, just another example of how incredibly lucky and grateful I am and how much gratitude I have for the sport of running. Night before the race, I posted a, um, uh, a message that I was racing for release recovery, a um, addiction recovery center in New York, founded by my friend Zach Clark, who won the Bachelorette a few years ago. Great kid, into running and recovering addict, crack and heroin, like hardcore addict. Wow. Like I was, I was like, I like you, man. If you're gonna do it, let's do it. Let's be real addicts. I say that in jest, but right. so he's got a he's got an excellent program called Release Recovery. So he asked me to represent them wear release recovery on my kit put out an announcement try to raise a little bread for them which i was happy to do i put that announcement up i get a voice memo the night before the race wishing me luck from a guy you may have heard of uh the rock uh-huh yeah may have heard of him dwayne johnson 300 totally. million followers yeah i love I mean, him so the day the weekend before thanksgiving i was going to um i was flying to new hampshire i was speaking to the um university of new hampshire hockey team about a whole bunch of different topics, but I noticed, holy shit, The Rock is following me on Instagram. Like, what? Like, I, I've never met him. I'm like, what in the hell? I posted a clip, or Rich Roll posted a clip where I was saying, like, you should exercise like your life depends on it because it does. So I said, he's following me. He must, he saw that clip in hindsight, and I sent him a DM and I said, hey, brother, thank you for the follow. I loved your interview with my friend Joe Rogan. Excellent job. Kudos. Yeah. Big fan. Fucking immediately sends me a voicemail. Hey, brother, rock here. Uh, appreciate your message on Instagram. He's like, I got to tell you, I went on your page and I loved it. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this if he watches Marnie on the Move. And uh, he was <laughs> I like, doubt he does. <laughs> uh, but you he know. was like, hey, listen, I, I, I got really inspired going on your Instagram page and uh, I'm ready to run through a brick wall. I'm going to go hit the gym now. Keep doing what you're doing and inspiring, brother. So I'm like, holy shit now i don't want to be like a fangirl like this yeah. is what drives me crazy about instagram if someone sends me a nice message i respond and immediately they hit me again like what do you think's gonna win the fight i'm like pretend we're dating dude don't fucking be so responsive like play it cool like, it's like when we too many emails today quickly. no yeah, when yeah. people are when yeah. people are too responsive it it makes the other party feel nervous like yeah. dude i don't want someone who's like too excited about being friends 
I want to be friends with everyone, but not if like I'm a quickly your best friend. So I, a couple of days later, I sent him a message actually regarding this coming week. I said, yo, I'm going to be in LA with my man Jelly Roll for, uh, I'm going to LA with Jelly Roll to do a few things, including the UFC in Vegas next weekend. And I was like, uh, let me know if you want to get together for a workout or something immediately. So that was like a day before the Memphis Marathon. So he responds back. I was Yo, I saw your thing about release recovery. I had no idea you went through this stuff. Like, good for you. Keep it going. It takes a lot of balls to share how you really feel. Like, it was the sweetest message. And then he's like, yeah, man, I'm supposed to fly to uh, Hawaii on the 14th. But let me know if um, I'll let you know. I'm going to try. I'll try and come link up with you guys before we fly. Of course, I was like, I can do the 13th, too. <laughs> I'm going to be out there on the 13th. So, anyway. Yeah. Point is, like, because of this stuff and sharing these, like, you know, sharing my kind of journey, which hasn't been the most comfortable experience, you know, getting comfortable sharing on social media, it doesn't come naturally to me. What a reward to, like, get the attention of a guy like the, I mean, my kids forget it. It was yeah. like, there is not a person in the world that I could have told them, hey, look who left me a message that would have impressed them. And they've, they're like friends with Jelly Roll. We go to his house for Thanksgiving, yeah. you know, he's a fucking huge rock star, like, They've met a bunch of many different world champion fighters. Yes. The Rock, they were like, what the, dad, dad, call him. I'm <laughs> like, that's not yeah. how these friendships work. Yeah, that's amazing that your kids, your kids are so adorable. Like, they're so cute. Oh, my God. So let's rewind for a second because you talked about your opioid addiction. When did you start running and getting into athletics? What's your sort of background and upbringing that got you to where you are today? Yeah, so I started... When I moved to New York, I was just doing the regular like workouts. I boxed for the New York Athletic Club. I was running a little bit. I bought a bike at some point because I had like some IT band issues and I didn't know anything about running. So I was like, why is my knee hurt? And I got a bike and very quickly I was like, I like this bike riding. And there were some nerds in my office and I was working in banking who were like really into biking. And they were like, you know, they were going to, they were going to like, in their mind, they were going to show me how to ride bikes and they were really into it. They had their whole kit. I didn't have, I didn't have a fucking helmet. <clears throat> yeah. And as soon as I went for one ride with them, I'm like, oh, either they're crazy thinking that they're good or I'm pretty good at this. And it was probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Like they were pretty good, but I was like, I was just, I was willing to suffer. And I realized quickly the same thing with running that if you're willing to work hard on training days, you'll kick ass in races because the race is like, that's like a beauty contest. You get to go and show off all the work you've done. The work's right. done months before. So I, I was, um, I had started doing like a little bit of triathlon before I got completely clean. I was at this point towards the end, I was just using enough drugs not to be sick, okay. <clears throat> not to get high. And um, when we went to get my daughter, when we adopted my daughter from Ethiopia and right before we left to get her like months before, that's when I went through like, the final like detox, like outpatient detox facility. And really it was fairly like, uh, I don't know if poetic is the word or après po, but like I'm going through this detox and I wake up one night on the bathroom floor. I must've got up to go to the bathroom because I was on all these other drugs to get off the drugs from the doctor. Like, so Xanax to sleep, blood pressure medicine, some kind of antidepressant. I don't remember what it was. I take Ritalin in the morning just for a week to get through a week of detox. And then I took a, um, then they gave me a shot of a drug called Vivitrol, which is an opioid blocker that prevents you from getting high. So one night I must have woken up to pee and fainted. And my wife woke, was screaming over me. And I was like, oh my God. And I just like, she kind of had an idea that something was wrong, but she only knew me on drugs. So it wasn't like, 
How'd your wife not know you were fucked up? She just thought I was crazy and erratic and, and unpredictable. Oh, she didn't know? And no, no, she wouldn't be party to that, <laughs> marrying a fucking junkie. So I was like living this huge lie and the pressure, it was so immense. And when she found me, you know, laying there on the floor, I was just like, oh my God. Like I was just destroyed. I was, you know, going through this withdrawal. So I was depressed. I was like, I was suicidal. Like right. I, 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 I say that and I, I want just people just take a minute and think about that. That's not a fucking throwaway term of like hyperbole. Like yeah, I was suicidal. No, in my mind, I was like, if this doesn't get better, I will jump off that fucking balcony. Just like I did the Gobi desert. I'm like, I will do this. And I had kept talking myself out of doing that because I was like, I have to get sober or kill myself. I have to do one or the other, one or the other. And I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to be sick anymore. I was like sick and tired of being sick and tired. And um, I, I, I got through that week, got the shot of Vivitrol, basically saved my life because it's a forced 30-day detox. You can't get high because I tried. You could take pills. It won't, they don't affect you. All the opioid, the, the opiate block uh, receptors in your brain get blocked. These, this drug, like for the scientists out there, I hope I'm saying this right, the, the opioid receptors in your whatever receptors in your brain that sense this drug – this other drug, Vivitrol, attaches to those receptors and prevents the opioid from blocking it and creating that euphoric, uh, like dopamine spike or whatever okay. chemical gets spiked. So, um, yeah, that was it. And then we went to Ethiopia, adopted my daughter. And really in 2010, like I started to like focus on training as a way to stay sober and moved to LA from New York. And I was doing triathlon, but then by that, by the time I moved to LA, we had four kids. We had four kids in six years because my first son, my wife got pregnant. We had gone through seven rounds of in vitro, three miscarriages. And when we, and we were always going to adopt. So we had started the adoption process while trying to get pregnant. We got matched with my daughter. We went over there for a week together. She got pregnant that week. I left and went back to New York to work. She lived in Ethiopia for two months with custody of my daughter, going through the process of like uh, getting all the documents in place with the embassy. And she came home pregnant. And I went back over for a week. If crazy thing is, I went back over for a week. And on the way back, I got, um, I came down with pneumonia. So I was, I thought I was going to die on the flight back. I went straight from the airport in JFK right to the emergency room. And they're like, oh my God, you have a horrible case of pneumonia. And I'm like, I'm going to, I probably killed everyone in the damn guest house I was staying in. So, um, so yeah, then we had two more boys. We, we had my first son exactly one year after my daughter. He, he came three weeks early, but he was due on her first birthday. And then, and then we had two more boys there. All the boys are exactly two years apart. Like all the birthdays are like in a five week spread, all four kids. Wow. And, um, so Right after we had the fourth one, we, we moved to Westchester County in, um, I think, 13. And then in 15, we moved to L.A. And when I got to L.A., right after the fourth one was born a few months after, I um, it, it, training for triathlon just wasn't realistic. It's just too much for my wife and for the kids. So I just started running every day. And it was like you – know, and by the way, my addiction journey wasn't like a smooth – a smooth um, – uh, glide path to, to sobriety. Like once I got sober, then I'd fuck up here and there. Like I had multiple relapses, not like relapses of weeks or months, but I certainly like didn't have like a, I can't say like on this date was the last date I ever did anything. Like I wish that I did that, but it ain't that easy. Um, but nevertheless, so nevertheless, when I get to LA, I was just like, you know, 
struggling a little bit emotionally working through my career was sucked at the time. And I was like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I'm, you know, 45 years old. This is not what I envisioned. I don't want to be in finance and like doing this. I didn't like it. It was just a means to an end. And I was just running for like mental health stuff. And that's when I started focusing on marathon in like 16, 17, really in 17, I started to like, I'm going to do just, I'm going to run, see how fast I can run. And it went, and it went quick. I went from like a two forty-five marathon in like 15 in New York. And then I ran a two forty in, 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 um, LA in like 18 or 19 and then two thirty-three the next time out in Tucson. And then I, then I stuck, I was stuck there for a year and a half or so. And then I started yeah. working with Mario Freoli and I got down to two two twenty eight at CIM in, um, 2019. What do you do that helps you increase your speed? Well, to get down to 233 from like yeah. 258, three hours, I just ran a shitload of miles. Okay. That was it. I didn't even, I never went to a track ever. I would do my 10 to 12 miles every single day, but I would, I had a 10 mile route every day in LA. It's on Strava back in like 16, 17, 18. You can see everything. I've posted every workout I've ever done is on Strava. I was running like 10 to 12 miles a day with 1400 feet of elevation gain on trails in the mountains. I was like strong. Yeah. And then I would go then with 10 weeks before a marathon, I'd go to, um, I'd go down to the beach once a week and I'd run from Palisades way over to Marina del Rey and back like, you know, 20 to 22 miles. And I would do every single one of those runs. I'd just do as a progression run. I'd start out at, let's say, seven-minute miles, and I'd be finishing at, like, you know, 530 miles. So I'd be averaging, you know, low sixes for 20 miles, and I'd do that once a week. And just through that, I got to 233, but then I couldn't get better. And um, for a year or so, then I started working with Mario, and then we just – we started – training just like um just like a professional marathoner would run but you know where they might run 120 to 40 miles a week i was doing like 90 to 100 for 10 weeks so you increase your mileage a lot your weekly mileage and then like say that I increased it a lot with Mario I had increased it a lot on my own and when I met Mario we started to get into some scientific science-based training programs so I would do track workout on Tuesdays my long run I'd either do two track workouts a week or two let's say speed work I would do you know fart lake workout a track workout if I did two workouts in the week then the long run would be just a steady progression run never not killing myself just long miles and then, and then the next week would be like Wednesday track day, Saturday, like structured long workout, like 10 miles at 6.30. And then, you know, th- three sets of three like this, 5.45, 5.35, 5. 5.25, back up to 5.45, 35.25. So, you know, the 5.45 mile was becoming the recovery mile and the work mile was 5.35. And the first time I did that, I was living in Philadelphia and me and Teddy Alice were training a kid called Alex Vosnick for the light heavyweight championship of the world in a huge pay-per-view fight against Arda Betabia. So I was training. It was my training camp for the race. So I was training like crazy. When I finished that workout the first time, I literally collapsed underneath an overpass on the uh, on one of the parkways in um, Philly. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to drop dead. I did the workout, but I was like, I- I'm. It's some. It's August. I'm going to like drop dead. I, I feel yeah. awful. I don't even know how I'm going to get back to the hotel. But I just kept doing whatever he told me to do. And I, in the first time we did a race when he was training me, I ran five, uh, 228 low. Wow. That's amazing. 
I mean, and especially like yeah. as you know, we're getting older. I mean, to be able to, I mean, everything is possible. I believe it's just like how much work do you want to put. But into remember, it? I had yeah. no, I had no mileage or metric to measure myself as a young man. I never ran. I never yeah. like com- did competitive running ever. So when people say it's crazy that you got fast that old, number one, I'd say, what other people that age have made this kind of commitment? Show yeah. I'm like an N of one. Who else has done this? It's very easy for people to be dismissive on like, oh, this doesn't make sense and hint that something is amiss. And I'm like, well, dude, what's who else has done this? I wasn't a runner, so it would make sense that if I started pouring on that I would get better. Yes, I'm getting older, but I also don't have a shitload of miles in my legs, and I've never really reached my peak performance. Right. And I I, I have always like looked and felt a little bit younger than I've been. Like, you know, I, I have some friends where, you know, they're 35 and their hair's all gray. And I'm like, damn, that guy looks old. He's yeah. fit. But some people just age differently. And yes. I don't know. This I've been lucky. I, I take good care of myself with the exception of abusing uh, drugs for 10 years. But I, I was never a big drinker. I, I never like would get drunk with taking the drugs. I just did drug. I just did, you know, pain medicine for yeah. years. Did you uh, probably you were- cost me? Yeah, and you were a boxer though too. I mean, I mean, half-assed amateur boxer. I wouldn't. I would never call myself a boxer. I okay. mean, other people could, but I wouldn't say that. Well, but I played I mean, hockey and football in college. Like I was a very active, athletic person, but never like had extraordinary athletic talents. Let's say. Yeah, and you also have a podcast, "The Fight with Teddy." The fight Atlas. with Teddy Atlas. Yeah, and I listened to one of the motivational episodes that was really inspiring. It was, I think it's the trailer on your YouTube, just talking oh, yeah. about like when you're down getting up. And I think that was so cool. I feel like there's a lot of metaphors and uh, philosophies that come from boxing that everybody can really learn from. I mean, not that Yeah, well, boxer, life but, is just like yeah. a... F- yeah. Life is just like a fight. Everyone feels the same thing. Like my partner, Teddy Ellis, would say that the 20 minutes before a big prize fight was the hardest part of any training camp because that's when your imagination starts to take over. And when you think about the all of the things that you can imagine happening to you, negative things, there's no end to it. Like yeah. any, well, you could get hit by lightning. Someone could shoot you from the crowd. I mean, think you you can get crazy. But the truth is those things aren't going to happen no matter what you think. And it's just as easy to focus that same energy. And this is what I do is instead of focusing on all the things that can go wrong, I'm focusing on all the things that I'm going to control to make go right. And I'm in the process of writing a book now. And one of the titles that I'm flirting with is 51% because using the Gobi Desert as an example, the voice in my head that was like, don't do this. We're scared. Protect yourself. You're going to make a fool of yourself. You're going to get hurt. You're going to do this. This is going to go wrong. The fucking sky is falling. The other voice in your head that's like, nah, fuck that, we're going to win, we're going to kill everyone, we're the best, we're number one, only has to be 51% yeah. to, to get the majority to cause you to take action that you know is the that you know what's the right thing to do. Don't yeah. listen to that other voice. And I, get, and I think that by calling it 51%, I'm just flirting with this idea, but the reason I like it is because it almost gives the reader or the listener an opportunity to understand it's normal and okay to have this narrative and this voice that's yeah. trying to deter you and trying to sabotage you. But don't let that voice get louder than the alpha voice that's telling you you can do it. And if you listen it closely enough and believe that 
51% becomes all you need. 50, 51% of the Senate votes one way and we've got new laws and there's nothing that you can do about it. Yeah. 51% of your brain tells you it's time to run regardless of what the event is. Then you're running and the rest is like in God's hands. Yeah. But so I like the concept of 51%. It gives, like I said, it gives people permission to recognize this other 49% because it's naive to think like, you know, there's guys like David Goggins who are just like, fucking do this, stay hard. I'm like, that's cool. But it's not realistic when you have four kids and you have a partner and, you know, like it doesn't, yeah. that, that his message, and I love David Goggins, his message doesn't give room for like recognition that every situation doesn't call for like fucking a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes you need to like put on the kid gloves and you're not the only person that's affected by your actions. And it took me a long time and a lot of painful lessons to realize this. But the truth is you have to be like a chameleon in life. And, you know, I think sometimes people think of a chameleon as being like a bullshit artist and turning into whatever people want you to be. But that's not it. I, I you think about it. I have to do this every day. Sometimes if I'm not motivated, not motivated isn't the right word. But if I'm just like dreading my run, extra dread, like it's pouring rain. I have to get into this like hard exterior where it's like, all right, it's time for the fucking horns to come out and be a devil. But then when I come home and one of my kids, like my, my youngest son fell getting off the bus and he mangled his finger and he's like, oh, my finger, how am I going to go to wrestling? And I'm like, come on, buddy, we'll tape it up. We'll tape it up. And he went to wrestling. It's funny story. He's wrestling with the kid and he comes out and he's, I mean, he's throwing this kid around. They're both fairly new at wrestling, but Cameron's really good at jujitsu. He's throwing the kid around. I'm like, damn, when he comes out, I'm like, Damn, dude, you were like ragdolling that kid. He's like, yeah, you know what he did? I'm like, what? He goes, he saw that my finger was hurt and he tried to squeeze it like three times. And I told him, if you squeeze my finger, if you do that again, I'm going to kill you. And the kid squeezed his finger and he was like, he's eight. He was picking the kid up on his shoulder, driving him down into the ground. I'm like, damn, Cameron, you were being extra rough with that kid. What's going on? And then he told me like, yeah, he was trying to squeeze my finger. I was like, good for you, buddy. Yeah. You, I know you were telling me he just won an award too, right? Like at his one of his uh, jujitsu matches. He he just got his, award, his uh, third belt. Yeah. he got his third belt upgrade, which in jujitsu you actually have to earn it. It's not like yeah. some martial arts where you show up ten classes and you're into the next level. Like you yeah. have to perform. And he's just started wrestling, and actually, this Sunday today is what uh, Friday on Sunday yeah. he's doing his first. It's a wrestling tournament just for the newer kids, but I'm like. First time he's ever had like a combat uh, competition, like combat sports competition. I am so nervous. My wife was like, should we go with the other kids? I'm like, I think that I should just go with him by myself because he's the type of kid, like if he doesn't, he's, he he cares so much. He's, he's a f phenomenal athlete. Like in flag football, if his team had 20 touchdowns, he had 15 of them. I mean, he's yeah. crazy. He's head and shoulders above the other kids, but maybe they'll all catch up, my, my kids. And – um but I'm so nervous because I could see him like losing it if he loses because he wants to please me so bad. But we always talk about just give your best. You don't have to win. There's always going to be someone better. But he's he doesn't hear that. He's just like, no, dad, I, I got, I'm going to win. I'm going to want to do. Okay, but so I said to my wife, maybe we try to downplay. He's already going to be crazy, like nerve psyched up and anxious. Yeah. Like maybe I just go with him just the two of us where I can kind of like loosen him up a little and show we're going to watch some videos tonight of like different friends that I have that have had fights and lost like Dustin Poirier and explain to him like 
here's what it looks like when two guys empty the tank and kill each other. One guy has to win, one guy has to lose. But you're not looking at that guy who didn't get his hand raised and thinking he's the loser. You're thinking, and there's Dustin Poirier behind me. You're thinking, that guy gave everything, man. What a warrior. And I'm like, that's all we can ask for at the end of a fight. If you try your best and everyone can see you trying your best, everyone there, regardless of who wins, are going to go, those guys are both winners. So I'm just focused, trying to focus on that. I think I'm probably more nervous than he is. Yeah, well, and he sounds a lot like you. He just wants to win. Oh, he is. Yo, he's, he, he's I mean, but he's the nice, he's the nicest of my kids. He's like a really sweet kid. He's, uh, you know, friends with uh, Dana White. He's, 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 yeah. pretty, he's, he's so unique. You mentioned that they got so excited when The Rock DM'd you, but do they also listen? I mean, the fight with Teddy Atlas, your podcast, you talk about fights and you do like, you know, you talk about predicting you know, how the fight's yep. going to go and get into like these details. Do they listen to that? They don't really listen to that. But like when we had Jake Paul on the podcast, I, I would never typically do this, but we were talking to Jake Paul and I said, and the kids came home. They knew I was interviewing them. So they came home from school right as I was getting close to the finishing and they're standing outside my office <laughs> and I see them and I was like this, come on. So they come around and they're standing right here and I go, guys, guys, I'm sorry. I feel like a complete asshole doing this, but I would be doing a disservice as a dad if I didn't let my kids come in here and say hi to Jake Paul. Keep in mind, I've asked them, if you could throw passes with Tom Brady or uh, box with Mike Tyson or yeah. talk to Jake Paul on the podcast, they like, talk to Jake Paul. And I'm like, okay. So I brought yeah. them in and he was like, hey, what's up, guys? And they were all just standing there like deer in headlights. Like, oh my God, it's him. It's just, That's I don't so know, cute. that part of... That of all the stuff that I have done in the last few years, and again, I'm incredibly fortunate, like being able to share those experience experiences with my children has been earth shattering to me. When Dana White invited me to take uh, Cameron to the UFC in Boston and we sat front row of the VIP section. So we're like sitting a few rows ahead of the Celtics head coach. We're sitting there. Johnny Damon comes over, takes off his World Series rings, gives it to my son. My son's posing with him right before the main event. Dana comes over, grabs my son Cameron, who's there with his Celtics jersey and his leprechaun hat, and his jersey says ride out on the back because when he was getting a jersey, I was like, what do you want for on the back of the jersey? Like Jason Tatum or one of the other guys is like, can I just get my own name? I don't want to have anyone else's name on my jersey. I was like, (laughs) I was literally like, thank you, Jesus. So he's got his ride out Celtics jersey, his leprechaun hat. He's got green and black Air Jordan shoes. Like he's a little hipster, right? So we're sitting there. Dana comes over and goes, Cameron, come with me. And grabs him and he's like, where's your phone? Of course, my kids don't have phones and they never will until they're like out of high school. Like that social media for children is like kryptonite. No, my 13-year-old daughter, like she accepts it. She knows it ain't happening. She knows? Wow. She ain't getting a damn phone. So so I go, no, he doesn't have a phone. Here, take mine. So I unlock and give it to Dana. Dana's like, come on, Cameron. Now, this is in between the co-main and the main. So the place is packed. Everyone who's coming is there. There's not an empty seat. And he says, uh, interrupts the broadcast, takes a picture of Cameron with Joe Rogan, Daniel Cormier, goes over to Bruce Buffer, the announcer, and he's like, um, Bruce Buffer's holding his hand, holding his hand up in the air and like like, you know, Cameron just won the uh just won the title. Here's the yeah. picture of uh Johnny Damon with my son and Cameron has his World so Series cute. ring on. I saw when we were in Austin the pictures. That's why I was like, he is the cutest kid. And he's there he like, is standing in the octagon. Dana brings him in. He's got his shoes on. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
my my other kids tease me. They're like they tease him because they're like, just because dad does that fisting doesn't mean you have to do a camera. He's like, I'm a fighter too. <laughs> so Dana takes him into the cage with it, and Cameron gets out of the cage and says, Dana, the next time you see me in the octagon, I won't have any shoes on. And I was like, again, thank you, Jesus. But I had moments where I was just sitting there and I'm like, holy shit, I've been to a lot of events and I love fights. That's my favorite thing to go to. But to be sitting there with my eight-year-old son, it's like what I've dreamed of from my earliest age or earliest uh, remembrance of like what I kind of things I wanted to do as when I was a dad and what kind of impression I wanted to have on my children. But to not only be there, but to have, and again, these are my people because like my podcast caters to right. this audience so that they right. recognize me, which is incredible. And the people are coming over like Johnny Damon and recognizing me. And my son is just like, his eyes are exploding. He's, he said to me at one point after we talked to Johnny Damon, he goes, dad, I think you're famous. And I said, no, buddy, there's just a few people know me here because of the podcast, but it was incredibly humbling. And uh, it was the one of the best nights of my entire life, by far, top three night ever, just to be there and just see his reaction and the people coming by and fist bumping him. And he's just, uh, it was, I mean, Dana White is just one of the nicest guys in the world. Such a nice guy. So then I'm sure you've read The Power of One. Of course. Have it right uh I haven't read it in a long time, but I feel like I want to reread it now because it was just one of these books. Yes. It's fantastic. A friend of mine gave it to me, like, and he was like, you should read this book. I was doing triathlon and windsurfing at the time, and he's like, you should read this book. You're going to really like it. And I'm like, about a boxer. Incredible book. Best book I ever read. (laughs) Yeah, so good. I tell everyone to read it. When are you back in New York? I got to work on my speed so I can not get dropped by the pack. Let's go. I am, um, I'm, I've got a crazy few weeks coming up. I'm going to LA yeah. with Jelly Roll and hopefully having dinner with The Rock. Then I'm going to, with oh my gosh, so you are going to have dinner with The Rock. I'm waiting for him to confirm, but uh, then I'm going to LA. I think we're doing something with Burke Kreischer on the 14th in LA. And then we're going to Vegas for the UFC. I think he's going, and then we're flying home together. And uh, part of changing the flight, I was supposed to go in LA this week, but when he was like, hey, I'm flying out there private, come with me. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. So anytime you can get a ride on a friggin' private jet bus going yeah. through the airport is a treat. So I'm do that. And then I've got, um, in January, I've got a bunch of speaking gigs, which has been like a dream come true for me. I friggin' love speak. Like, you know, initially you're scared shitless like anyone. I mean, the first time I did a speak, a real speaking gig to a corporate gig, I literally was like about to go on. And I said to the woman, like, oh, give me one second. I forgot something in the green room. And I'm not kidding. I went in the green room, put my hands on my knees and started like trying to avoid hyperventilating. And I was like, why the fuck am I nervous? This is stupid. No one's going to punch my face or kick me in the ass. Like, why am I scared? And then I got my shit together and went out and did it. It was a terrible speech. But every time I get a little bit better and now I've got some some serious uh, speaking opportunities in January that I just confirmed today. So like back-to-back days in January, one in Miami, one in Vegas. I spoke to the UNH hockey team. I, I'm trying to do some more team stuff, maybe with some NHL teams in um, January and February. So, yeah. I'm just like living the life that I had always dreamed I could live. And uh, it's finally happened. It only took 52 years. That's amazing. That's super, super <laughs> exciting. So you're doing, so you're speaking and you are also coaching. Are those like two things? No related, coaching. Or you're not, no, co- you're no, done. Okay. No you're more coaching. coaching. It's, I'm, okay. I'm not good at it. Honestly, I'm okay. just not good at it. I mean, I, I think that I could potentially work with some people one on one, but not on run coaching, more like executive coaching 
coaching yeah. or counseling, but not as a business, like just as a handful of people that have inquired. Mario's a coach. I'm not a fucking coach. Like I, yeah. that coaching requires too much handholding, whereas I'm like toughen the fuck up and just do it. Like, what are you talking about? And yeah. or or if they're like, I didn't do this. I did this. Like when Mario writes my program, if I have to change something, I don't have to call him for permission. I'm like, hey, I can't do that run Saturday. I'm going to do it Sunday or Monday. And he's like, okay, I'll adjust. Like we don't even have to like we talk like twice during a training block. Everything yeah. else is like, he doesn't have to tell me how he's tweaking the workout. And I don't want to know. I just want to blindly follow it. And that's why I pay him to do it. Uh, I'm doing speaking. I'm writing a book. That's super exciting. And I'm doing some um, stuff with Peyton Manning for his uh, Omaha Productions. We're working on some like stuff in the venture space, venture investing, cool. which is cool. crazy to even say out loud. That's very exciting. It sounds like it takes a long time to get to where you want to be and also like figuring out where you want to be, right? Like, and as <laughs> things are rolling out, you know, it's like, how do you kind of flow with what's happening? And it takes a big yeah. person to say that doing one thing isn't for them. So, yeah, no, listen, I think one of my strengths has always been knowing what I'm good and bad at and not being afraid yeah. to tell the truth. Even when I've taken jobs in finance, as I've spoken with, uh, venture funds recently and they're like well what do you think of this i'm like yeah listen i'm a business development guy but if you need me to put the presentations together or you need me to analyze investments i'm the wrong guy i don't have those skills i know it i i don't but if you want someone who can raise money and get you in front of the right audience like i am that guy yeah awesome and what are some of the topics that you speak on i mean if you want to share maybe one or two yeah I, uh, well, I speak a lot on mindset and this concept of 51% of like, it's only the, it's only like a marginal tweak that you have to make to initiate change or initiate action. And it's like, uh, when I went to that a mental health facility called uh, onsite workshops, they talk about a concept of changing just one degree. Cause if you think about a sailboat in the ocean and you change the direction by just one degree, where you end up in two days from then is fucking drastically different from if you had gone two degrees the other direction you know what i mean you the yeah. slightest variation over time becomes massive you know instead of now uh landing in england you're heading towards africa but when you first started it was like oh, i'm just slightly off course here i'm not gonna bother just like that can be negative you can also turn that into a positive so on a daily basis maybe it's one thing maybe just Every single day, like recently, I've been waking up and reading uh, different captions from uh, Marcus Aurelius, like um, meditations. And it sounds corny and cliche, and I know that, but I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks. I do what I know is going to work. And just instead of looking on my phone or looking on email and stuff, I spend the first like 15 minutes just reading. And, and over the course of the last couple of weeks, 15 minutes becomes 20 minutes some days. It's a half an hour. And I get my mind into the right the right kind of action that I'm looking for for the day. Whereas if you look at your phone first and you get like an email, that's like, Hey, we're not going to hire you to speak. And you're like, God damn it. I wanted to do yeah. that. Now it's like the whole day is set off negatively. Totally. And it sounds stupid, yeah. but think about it. Anyone who's listening, think about what happens. If you look at your emails first thing and you get bad news first thing in the morning, it's like no, the whole fucking day is like, you don't realize it, but it's that one degree shift. One degree is like, God damn. So maybe you don't go outside and get some sunlight. Maybe you only run a mile instead of 10 because that email fucked you up for the whole day. Yeah. Whereas if you get your mindset right, let's say I'm, I'm just using this as an example. You read yeah. 30 minutes of meditations and you're like, that's right. That's right. I'm a fucking stoic. And then you get a bad email and you're like, 
eh, fuck it, win some, lose some. Let me just make adjustments and roll with it. Yeah, and off you go. Yeah. That's so, true. That's small true. changes. So yeah. that's what I talk about in the speech. And I also talk about the fact that it's never too late. At 50 years old, I became, you know, somewhat recognized by people for what? Athleticism at 50? The point isn't I did this. The point is I don't give a fuck what your goal is or what your interests are, whatever it is. You can make a difference. You can become the best uh, pickleball player. You can become the best guitar player, soul singer, like pick something. You could learn the most languages anyone's ever learned. Like there's something that interests you. If it interests you, it interests other people. You'll find, you'll find those people and everyone respects the people that are good at the activity they like. If you go to a fucking weightlifting gym, the biggest muscle head in there is the leader of the gym. Everyone's like, oh shit, here comes Rocco. Soon as Rocco leaves, he's a dummy. But when he's in the gym, they're like, oh shit, Rocco's here. Look at his muscles. Like, okay, cool. But I, I say yeah. that in jest, but it applies to anything. It's like same with running. You show up and you're the fucking fastest runner there. And like, you know, at Memphis Marathon, people want to take pictures with me. I'm like, pictures with me? I couldn't get arrested 10 years ago. All of a sudden, like, you want to take a picture with me? I'm like the same person. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm an idiot. I just had a couple fast races. That's it. And I've got to share my message. And I've always known that my message was unique and that I was living an interesting life. It just took some sort of recognition for people to take the time to understand and hear the message. Yeah. Well, I think that also people can relate to you because, you know, they can relate to that you're like an everyday guy and you're just doing That's, that's exactly what I would, how I would describe it. I'm everyone. I'm you. Yeah. Uh, if if mean, you are impressed by something. Athlete. Yeah. Nope. I'm every man. I really am. I'm a guy who struggled with addiction. I'm a guy who struggles to be a good dad. I yell at my kids sometimes too much. Sometimes I'm too hard on them about cleaning up after themselves. Like I make all the same mistakes other people make. I just, if anything, I have an extreme ownership, um, an extreme ownership uh, method to my madness is just like, I have to own this good and bad. And when it's bad, I have to acknowledge that it's bad and address it. That right. doesn't mean that it's going to be good the next time. But I know right from wrong, and I'm trying to do it all right. And if by sharing my experiences can help other people avoid some of these pitfalls, that's the greatest gift of all. And it's nothing yeah. makes me feel better than being of service to other people. And just to add, because I did say you're an everyday guy, but you also have been working on yourself. So you're not like oh, you're yeah. like everyone, but you're not like everyone because you're putting in the extra work and the extra time, and you have a different kind of drive. And so you make it look accessible. And it is. I'm glad I'm said. glad you mentioned that because yeah. I want to point out to everyone. If you think you're unique, you're not. We're all the same. And if you think that like you don't need help with mental health, I don't care. The healthiest person in the world has things that they'd like to improve. I think that yeah. there's an uh, there's a natural like uh, feeling amongst men to almost avoid talking about or dealing with feelings and emotions, but that's so naive. Like does any yeah. do you think I'm less tough because I tell you that you know, I fucking cried when uh, I was taking my son to the UFC. Like, no one would ever say that. People think this in their head that, that other people are judging them. And they are. But guess yeah. what? We're all doing the same shit. Who gives a fuck? What, you, what do you care? If someone doesn't like me, well, here's the best. If someone thinks that I'm a pussy because uh, I, I share my emotional journey, like, come and tell me. I'm sure I'll love to give you the opportunity to show me how tough you are. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm easy to find. And like, I say that in jest, but the truth is when you're confident with yourself and you, you, you know who you are, I don't give a shit if someone doesn't think I'm tough. Like I know I'm tough. I don't have to be a fucking 
in your face all the time. Like I, it, I know who I am. When you know who you are, you don't really get overly concerned with what other people think about certain things. Yeah. You know, it's true. It's true. Well, this has been super awesome. Thank I, you for your time. You're very welcome. I'm sure I'm going to, I'm going to piss off a lot of people because I've turned down like 200 podcast interview requests, but I have all the time for you, Marnie. Oh my God. That's so sweet. Thank you, Ken. I didn't even like, <laughs> I'm like you. I'm like, Hey, let me just ask Ken. I am so grateful, yeah. and honestly, like, this is great, and I hope that we have the opportunity to meet up again and run together, and like I said, I just need more than- We're friends. Of course yeah. we're going to fucking run together. We're going to run together. I, totally. I hang out with my friends. Anyway, thank you for having me on your show. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events 